Okay, so hello everyone. My name is Joanna Freeman and I'm a specialist pharmacist working with DSPS. So I'd like to welcome you all to this podcast. Um, you may have listened to a few already in the series or this might be your first, but either way, I hope you enjoy the next 15 minutes or so um, and get something out of it for your own personal practice. Um, as I've alluded to, this is a series of podcasts which will be focusing on clinical decision making in practice. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by Alison Warren. So, Alison, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. I don't know if you want to just introduce yourself and your role. Yeah, thanks, Joe, um, and thank you for inviting me. So, um, as Joe says, my name's Alison Warren. I'm a consultant pharmacist in cardiology. I'm based right down on the south coast, so I'm based in Brighton. And um, my role as a consultant pharmacist, I work both in secondary care, uh, mainly in outpatient clinics, but with a, a long background in hospital pharmacy. Um, and then for the last few years, also working out in primary care, so working with colleagues as part of the medicines management team, but working uh, with colleagues in, in uh, GP practices um, who are looking after patients with cardiovascular disease and, and trying across that spectrum to improve medicines management. Lovely, thank you. Um, so now we know who we all are, let's get down to the nitty gritty of why we're here today. So, Alison, I wonder if you could just start by giving us a brief description of the clinical decision that you'd like to explore with us today. Yes, thank you. So uh, one of my roles is I work as an independent prescriber as part of a heart failure team, uh, which spans across uh, primary and secondary care. Um, within my clinics, um, I have a special focus on patients who have uh, been in hospital recently with an acute coronary syndrome and uh, have developed uh, impairment of their left ventricular function as a result of that um, and are uh, requiring medicines optimization and uh, titration of their secondary prevention to, to improve their longer term outcomes. So they're, they're quite a complex group of patients in terms of their uh, comorbidities often um, and um, the patients are often on, on several medicines all of which have been started during the acute hospital admission. Um, and the particular patient that sort of stuck in my mind was a gentleman I came across recently who uh, was invited to, uh, to attend the pharmacist clinic. Um, and his first and, and opening gambit when he walked into the clinic room before he'd even sat down uh, was that, um, oh, you're going to tell me off. Um, which was which was quite an interesting approach because he hadn't even you know come in the room. I haven't even had an opportunity to introduce myself or you know what the the reasoning for him being invited to the clinic was, which is is usually something that we we do right at the beginning. Um. So, so uh, it was quite a challenging uh, opening conversation. And um, as we as we sort of sat down and he started talking, he was basically saying to me, you know, I've been discharged with seven new medicines i've never taken any medicines before nobody really explained to me what all these medicines were um, and actually i haven't really been taking them so this was a gentleman who was three weeks post quite a large heart attack um, with an impaired left ventricle who was not taking 
any of his medication on on a regular basis. So it was it was challenging, I guess, to think about why he he might feel like that, um, and we had to explore the reasons behind that. Um, and I think what was quite important to say to him was it, it wasn't my job to tell him that he had to take the medication. Really, my role in 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 his care was around discussing with him maybe the risks and the benefits and that balance and giving him perhaps an informed uh, uh, information so that he could make a decision about which of the medications he would like to consider taking um, as we moved forward. Um, and clearly it was going to be quite challenging to get him from saying I'm not really going to take anything to saying I'm going to take all of these medicines that have been prescribed on hospital discharge. So we tried to break them up into sort of rational subgroups within the groups to, to, to see which ones we could we could have a, a, a discussion around and, and have some ag agreement about what he might do moving forward. And appreciating that I probably wasn't going to get him onto all of the medicines, um, but if I could get him on to, to at least some, which in the short term were probably the most important, um, then we could arrange for further follow-up to, to sort of progress the discussion um, <coughs> once he was happy with the, with the initial agreement and had a little bit of time to, to think about the information that had been able to provide him in, in the clinic that day. So I suppose it's... Um... That's a really great example of a shared decision making, isn't it? So it's not necessarily you as a clinician making the decision. It's about the joint uh, partnership with the patient. Um, so I guess from your point of view, that's quite an interesting one, because not only do you need to understand the, the kind of the evidence base from your point of view, but you need to then communicate it in a way that the patient will understand and, and take on board. So um, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of in terms of doing that, I, um, I what what I found was useful was to think about the, the medicines as I say in groups. So the first thing I was thinking was that this gentleman had had a heart attack. The the treatment for a heart attack these days is to you know percutaneously open up the coronary artery and usually usually a coronary stent is put into place and there is a high risk particularly in in early early treatment that if the patient isn't on appropriate antiplatelet therapy then that they have the potential for stent thrombosis which has actually got quite a high mortality so that was my immediate priority was to get him to agree to take some antiplatelet therapy to reduce the risk of his stent blocking off. Um, and by using the fact that he'd recently had a heart attack, he knew what that felt like. He hadn't enjoyed the whole situation. The thought of having another heart attack because he wasn't taking those medications and that potentially could be uh, a more immediate thing that he would experience was probably a good starting point. And in fact, he did agree to take the dual antiplatelet therapy. So he was, uh, that he had been prescribed once he, once he understood why that, that was considered so important. So that was, that was sort of step one. 
suspects about him understanding what's important to them isn't it as well yeah yeah absolutely um step step two was thinking then about some of the sort of more longer term secondary prevention so this was a patient who'd got an impaired left ventricle we would like that left ventricle to improve um, and he was prescribed a combination of an ACE inhibitor, a beta blocker, and a plerinone, which is a standard combination for patients in that clinical setting. Um, and and talking talking to him, he was very anti-taking the beta blocker. He had some preconceived ideas about beta blockers. He'd had a friend who'd been on beta blockers. He just didn't want to take a beta blocker. Now, fortunately he had quite a low resting heart rate. So I felt much more comfortable about making a decision around agreeing with him that we wouldn't reinstitute the beta blocker for now, um, because there was probably, it was probably less important for him at, at that stage. However, I was keen to get him onto either an ACE inhibitor or something similar. But again, he wasn't keen on the ACE inhibitor he thought it had caused him a cough. He'd heard of other people that had a cough with it. He wasn't willing to retry it. So we managed to persuade him to to switch to to a, a, a sartan. Um, and be, because he was quite reluctant to take medication, I didn't want to pick something that had lots of steps in terms of titration. So I decided to go with something that was fairly easy to titrate. So slightly compromised on perhaps which shot and I probably would have chosen in an ideal world if the patient uh, had impaired left ventricular function um, and chose one that I could institute at a medium dose because he had plenty of blood pressure and probably would only need one dose titration which I thought he might buy into a bit more than me fiddling around <laughs> for several weeks trying to get him titrated to to a higher dose so a bit more of a pragmatic approach to to choosing the particular agent and we agreed to leave the aplerinone off for the time being um he was also as you won't be surprised prescribed a statin um uh, and there the conversation started again um around the 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 pros and cons of statins and of course as most people will be aware they are highly written about in in the press um, lots of people do have opinions around whether they would like to take statins or not um, and trying to talk to him about the differences between using statins in patients who haven't had coronary disease versus patients who have had an event and why we think a statin may be beneficial over and above the effects that it has on on cholesterol. He did have coronary disease in other vessels, which would make it, you know, quite a, an attractive option from a terms of, of secondary prevention as well. Although he didn't have particularly high cholesterol, so it's it's quite an interesting conversation when you start talking to people around statins. And I try and veer away from talking about them specifically being cholesterol lowering agents because we're mm. talking about them to reduce cardiovascular risk. Um, and once you start getting tied up in cholesterol levels that aren't particularly high to somebody that isn't keen on taking a statin, yeah. you can you can sort of get tied up in knots. But he 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 wasn't over keen by the fact that we'd gone on with in with a really high dose of statin, although that is 
standard practice and the evidence base would suggest you know high potency statins started early after an acute coronary syndrome is beneficial um so so i i i tried to, to provide him with enough information to suggest that a statin at whatever dose would still be helpful and that if he wasn't keen on a high dose of statin would he consider a lower dose of of a statin rather than no statin now i wasn't successful yeah. on day 1 <laughs> um and yeah. um, you know that that's 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 how it goes. I, I came out of of day one with him agreeing to take the dual antiplatelet therapy, and the sartan, um, and agreeing to go away and consider taking taking the statin. Now, so I suppose I, um, you know a sort of good example or a, a take home message for that might be that actually option one might not always be the best for the patient and you know looking at option two three and four it is often a good compromise it's yes. the kind of risk risk benefit isn't it yes. of absolutely taking nothing versus a slightly compromised treatment um, yes. and i guess it's it... important for him to think he to to what to you know, appreciate that, that i was listening to him as well mm. i think i think he came in with quite um an antagonistic almost um approach in that you know you're going to tell me off i'm not going to take your medicines uh, i don't really know why i'm here <laughs> yeah um, and by the time we got to the end of the session and, and i'm lucky i do have a reasonable length of time with with these patients um he had he had agreed to to some of the medication um clearly if i was starting him on uh on a sartan i, I needed to ask him also to have blood tests done to to check the safety and the ongoing safety and I think he quite liked that aspect actually I think he quite liked the fact that I wasn't just recommending these medications for him and then nobody was going to actually follow it up um, so I think yeah. he quite liked the fact that I was giving giving him or t recommending for him a, a, a blood test as a safety check to make sure that things were all right uh, he had a home blood pressure monitor he could monitor his blood pressure at home he had my contact details so that he could get back in touch with me um, and um, i crossed my fingers and hoped things would would go well and in fact he did quite surprise me in the fact that he did have the blood test exactly on the day that he had agreed to have it done um, he did come back for a further appointment so I marked that as a, a slight episode of success that he would had uh, then uh, uh, you know agreed to a treatment plan and then had executed on it. Um, yeah, I mean, it all, very all much. that went well, um, and then we had a further conversation around the statin, but I, I still was not successful in in managing to persuade him to <laughs> to take to take the statin. But I think I win some, win some, and lose some. It's yeah. <laughs> but it sounds like. Um, Sort of allowing the patient to feel in control and safe. So, you know, the safety netting that you put in afterwards as well sort of helped out. So, um, so obviously you're a consultant pharmacist with lots of experience. Um, have you got any hints or tips for people who might be starting off on this journey? Yeah, I think I think really important one is to listen to what the patient is saying to you. Because it would have been very easy for me just to say to him, well, you need to take all these medicines. Um, and, you know, 
give a quick, well, these are sort of the standard, this is what the guidelines say. I, I try and, and veer away from saying this is what the guidelines say. Try and think about how it might apply to that individual patient. I mean, the other thing to think about with him is he, he had left ventricular impairment after his heart attack. In some patients, that will recover quite significantly. And so making sure, again, that he had um, appropriate ongoing follow-up. So we would rescan the patient um, and have a, a, another look at what their left ventricle is doing a bit further down the line. Now, now clearly, if his left ventricle improved, then the need for some of the medication perhaps was less important than, than <laughs> if his left ventricle had remained severely impaired. Um, and so, you know, also saying to him, OK, this is where we're going, what we're going to do for now. However, we may need to reassess that treatment plan, and that will depend on the results of your subsequent tests. Um, and if, if, you know, if those subsequent tests don't show an improvement, then there will be some sort of uh, further discussion needed around yeah. why these medications may, may be important for you in, in, the, in the longer term. So I suppose as you know, another message is that actually a decision isn't set in stone. It, it changes over time, doesn't it? As the as the patient's clinical condition changes. Well, we're actually we're out of time. In fact, we've gone a bit over. Um, but there's so much more that we could talk about. So thank you so much, Alison, on behalf of our listeners and the SPS for sharing your experience. Um, thank you as well to the listeners who've taken time out of their day. I hope that you found that useful and that you've got something out of it. As I mentioned, it's this is one of a series of podcasts on clinical decision making. So if you haven't already, please do have a listen to the others. And also, if you have a clinical decision that you'd like to share, please get in touch because we are hoping to record more of these sessions in the future. So you can get in touch via the SPS website, which is where you'll find all the other podcasts and webinars in the series. So it just remains for me to say thank you very much again to Alison, to our listeners, but also most importantly to the IT team um, who make all this possible. Um, so thank you, everybody. and Bye for now. Thanks, Joe.